0: Hello and welcome to Oxpods English, the podcast by students and their professors at the University of Oxford. I'm here with Professor Stafford, Professor of English Language and Literature and Fellow of Somerville College. Her research areas include not only Romantic literature, focusing on such writers as Austin, Keats and Wordsworth, but also place and nature in literature and the cultural history of flowers and trees. A recent event organised by Professor Stafford aims to bring these two areas of interest together and investigate the way in which the natural world impacts our reception of stories and literature. Good morning, Professor Stafford. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure, Flora. Thank you for asking me. Thank you
0: very much. Um, I wanted to start off by talking about an event you recently organised in collaboration with the storyteller Ben Haggerty at the Oxford Gardens. Could you just explain how this event came about and why you were interested in its outcomes?
1: Yes, it came about as things often do in Oxford. Um, from a conversation, I was talking to John Geddes, uh, who is professor of psychiatry in Oxford, and we were discussing the benefits of green space um, on uh, on mental health <clears throat> and um, discussing uh, student anxieties, these kind of questions. Um, and we were we were talking about. Um, the natural world, we're interested in the arboretum and the botanic garden Uh, and wondering about how um, students could become more aware of uh, those those spaces Um, and we were also talking about uh, storytelling because John is a scientist and so his approach to mental health is obviously scientific and medical, Um, whereas I'm a literature person so I'm interested in um, the imaginative effects uh, of, of green space and there's lots and lots and lots of evidence in literature and I've been interested in this for, for some years now. I'm very interested in in trees especially uh, and we were, we were just having a chat really and he was talking about the visiting fellow uh, at Merton this year, Ben Haggerty, the storyteller um, and we thought it would be an interesting idea to stage storytelling um, in a green space with a student audience just to just to see how people reacted um, not with any uh, kind of expectation of what the result would be, but just mm. just to um, set that up and see, see how, how it went and, mm. and listen to what people felt about listening to a story out of doors, which is rather different from people's usual experience of stories, which is often sitting on their own uh, either with a screen or listening to a podcast or reading a book Mm. Uh, it tends to be quite an isolated experience so we thought well this would be interesting
0: and in terms of looking at
1: the, so
0: obviously from a scientific perspective, you're looking at the mental health benefits. Um, from the literary perspective, is that something you're also examining or was it more about the kind of recept- any kind of reception impact that it has?
1: Um, well, we had an open mind to what we'd find as, as with any kind of experiment or, or research. Mm-hmm. But of course, I'm very interested in the literary dimensions of storytelling and whether um, the space in which people experience stories uh, affects how they respond to the story because I'm very often struck by the difference between listening oh even to quite a long novel on a podcast um from actually reading it and mm. I know lots of other people have that you might have had that experience your, yourself um, um yeah absolutely I've had that with the difference between
0: some of Austin's novels I've encountered through text and some um orally and I think it makes a huge difference in terms of enjoyment versus academic uh sort of integrity I think there's something about listening to a story that makes us feel more like we're just engaging with a recreational activity versus reading and I suppose choosing a student audience for that an
1: academic student audience would really examine that kind of difference yes well I was particularly interested in English students because they tend to be rather sophisticated (laughs) receivers of stories I mean that's Mm. uh, that that, that's what that's what you you learn to do when you're studying for a degree and also um, English students tend to particularly like stories that's another reason why they choose the subject so Mm. I thought English students would be particularly interesting um, as an audience for storytelling, especially especially um, because Ben tells very traditional stories he sometimes does kind of ancient epics like Gilgamesh and sometimes Mm. he does folk stories which could be North European or from anywhere Um, and I was interested to see how a sophisticated literate audience responded to that kind of story um, in an oral situation out of doors. And have you had any
0: responses? Have you have they been surprising to you? Have they been obviously you went in with an open mind, but have you had some interesting responses to it?
1: Yes, we're still we're still gathering them, so we haven't had a chance to um, discuss them. Um, but the uh, initial uh, initial kind of feedback has been really really interesting, um, and people definitely seem to respond very much to hearing a story in the open air, and it seemed to um, make the whole experience quite quite different from from what anyone was expecting. Um, mm. it's, it's partly because there are other sounds so you it's not just um you know an individual with with a sequence of words um there is the performance aspect of it but then also things like um there was running water in the background there were church bells there were birds mm. singing um so those all added i think to, to the experience mm. um and, and and quite a few people have mentioned that i don't know well you were there flora weren't you yeah
0: absolutely that that's definitely what i kind of mostly covered in my response was it, it was the interaction between the sort of back, quote unquote background noises and the sort of intentional noise of the story. Because obviously in an open space you can't it's not like a soundscape in a theatre, you can't control what other sounds come into your story, but actually they interacted in a really nice way. Sometimes complimentary, sometimes just as like a nice distraction if the story there's a pause in the story or, or a gap. Um but in terms of listening to stories both out of doors and just orally. Is that something that's uh, traditional to these kind of stories? Do you think it's important that for a folk story that would traditionally have been told like that, we should continue to preserve that tradition?
1: I, I do. And I think um, one of the interesting things about um, the internet is that, and, and the kind of electronic revolution is that it's, ironically it's kind of enabling some very traditional forms of storytelling again Mm -hmm. because we've actually got the technology uh, to enable people to listen to really really good good storytellers so I think there is a big comeback and I think also quite a lot of Um, folk tales feed their way into uh, computer games um, Mm. and 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 all kinds of fantasy literature as well and films so um, I I think that that what we might think of as old traditional literature is actually very much alive and and well in popular culture I don't know what you think about that well I certainly found that from listening to the story although
0: the specific story wasn't familiar to me every single kind of turning point or main character in it was and you could even see that with the way that Ben was telling the story he was able to leave gaps and sort of say now if you go to a hag's house in the middle of the night how many times do you knock of course everyone knows the answer is three because you've grown <laughs> up with the same stories um which I found really interesting that they're just still so pervasive although there were kind of points in the story where you think oh that's a bit misogynistic or, or I don't really think we say we say that anymore but actually we do it's just been buried in different ways in our stories mm-hmm. um this is straying from the topic slightly but I'm interested in what you We're saying about the digitalization of stories because I know there's now a trend for if you go on YouTube and you want your children to have a bedtime story you can search you know three little pigs read by whatever and you can just get a story read to your children digitally do you think that there's something that's being lost in the digitalization of stories in terms of lacking where we the place between parents and children where we would traditionally have preserved that kind of Direct oral tradition, or traditional, do you think actually that 's just enca-
1: enabling more children to encounter text um, I think as usual it'd be a, it'd be a mixed picture, mm. and i 'd be surprised if all parents have stopped reading to their children because I do think there 's something very important about that, and mm. a, as I also think there 's something very important about hearing live storytelling, which was one of the things that was very striking um, in, in in the garden you 're very conscious of ben Haggerty as a as a storyteller interpreting um, and, and kind of um, the experience of of, of a, a real person in close proximity telling you a story is quite different from anything you'd ever get online. Uh, but I think the um, the abundance of resources online mean that you know people can be exposed or maybe discover more stories than they might otherwise. Mm. Um, you know, there are all sorts of people who. May not have a local library, may not have books in the house. So, although they might want to read to their children, it, it's becoming more difficult for them. So, mm. they might um, listen to a story and then, you know, find the, find the words themselves and then and, and be able to tell the story in their, in their own way. Because I think the thing about oral storytelling, although it's great hearing, um, you know, the best people, which is often what you get on YouTube or whatever, there's also something about the individual storyteller and the spin that they put on it. I mean, this is partly why very traditional stories people can hear them again and again without being bored um they, they are always kind of different depending on who's who's telling the story whether it's a man or a woman whether they're um they have their own kind of little digressions uh, i mean in a way i think the nearest thing to the oral story tradition nowadays is probably a really good stand-up routine you know mm. someone who stands on their own on stage with an audience interacting with the audience and can you know just just go on with a kind of shaggy dog story um, with mm. with little kind of diversions and things for for an hour or so mm. it, it's the same it's the same technique it's just i don't think we think of it as as the same experience mm. and in a similar way you get the same tropes cropping up again and again stand up but it's not boring if the,
0: if the person if the performer is good enough
1: no and sometimes if it's a familiar stand up as with a familiar storyteller you're almost waiting for the familiar mm. uh, the familiar tropes aren't you or the catchwords yeah. or whatever and and there's something about that that people like I mean what you're saying about how we all knew that it was three knocks on the door is really yeah. interesting whether or not you've heard the story because it's a kind of formula it's a it's something you're waiting for and there's something reassuring about that yeah. um, and and the sort of story it was even if you had never heard it you've heard things like it and you kind of know what What's going to happen? You know mm. how it's going to work out in some way, and and I think that's um, you know that that's that's part of a traditional traditional story and part mm. of the enjoyment of it. Um. I suppose there's one thing that troubled me slightly about listening to it was
0: the kind of few the, the the one female character and the way that she was presented and particularly the relationship that became quite troubling between <laughs> them. With um, to give a quick summary of the story, it was a quest um, of a young man and his older companion. Um, he was had been told in a dream that he wanted to marry this princess or he was destined to marry her. He eventually found her. She'd been possessed by some kind of demon and in the end woke up not knowing who he was, but already married to him and decided that this was the best thing that ever happened to her and stayed married to him, Um, which was quite troubling. I think for quite a lot of the audience, I mean, as much as we love these kind of traditional stories and we love how they are reinforced and we know what the ending is going to be. We obviously know that because we've been told these stories as children. And do you think there's something to be said for, uh, kind of trying to change that for young
1: girls growing up today or do you think it is more of a question of bringing in new stories alongside the old yeah or or um challenges to the um old stories i mean angela carter obviously does mm. that doesn't she in the company of wolves i mean she 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 was doing that you know 30 40 years ago yeah. taking what are really as you say, misogynistic tales and giving giving them a spin. And I know I agree, I was very struck by that, actually. Um, and I was listening and thinking, goodness me, um, if it wasn't an old story, we would be finding this completely unacceptable. But there's something about it somehow being far away and long ago that means you kind of follow it and get some enjoyment of it in, t- in narrative terms, mm. even though um, I mean, it wasn't just the the poor princess who who apparently seemed all powerful uh, and as such was horrifying to everybody, uh, but then turned out to have no agency at all. Mm. Uh, it was also the you know the three hags as well, yeah, absolutely. and and also Jack, Jack's mother who just you know gets left left behind. I mean, it it was uh, yeah. It wasn't a story that was celebrating female autonomy, I would say mm. um, and that of course is is kind of problematic for us, but it's also it's also quite instructive i think it's it's quite interesting i mean I don't think when you're listening to an oral story, you just kind of um put all your critical faculties mm. to sleep you 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 know you are it's a different way of engaging it i actually um and I imagine women have always found them rather troubling stories,
0: yeah. No, absolutely. I suppose the question is with a young child whether we want to be
1: introduced in those kind of stories. But I suppose with a healthy balance of modern stories as well then it becomes easier, doesn't it? Yeah, it, uh, it, 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 is, a, it is a tricky one. And I think you can do modern spins on old stories as well which can, can be interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think that, that is actually something that, that's really interesting to discuss. I don't yeah. think it's straightforward. And there are different sorts of stories. There are, you know, there are stories where um, female characters have a bit more... Um, you know mm. a bit more agency and, and come out of it, it better mm. um, but but it, I think it reveals a lot about you know kind of traditional uh, prejudices if you think about the witch figures that appear in all old stories I mean it's absolutely terrifying and did often lead to the most appalling um, you know kind of human tragedies so, yeah. so I, I don't think oral storytelling is always beneficial Mm. um but I think it's quite important to understand it because I think some of those prejudices are still very much around and and there they are being kind of revealed before our eyes
0: absolutely and I think our interaction with that as a group of kind of 18 to 22 year olds was the experience of oh I know this story oh but now I find it troubling and I never sort of did as a child and that's an interesting thing to then Mm. have in your kind of armory to examine um but in terms of putting a maybe not a feminist spin but a kind of Interrogating these stories a little bit more. That's something that people have been doing going back to the Romantics, which is obviously your mm. specialism. So, Wordsworth's poem, Michael, is about the the father that gets left behind by the son who leaves home to seek his fortune, much mm. like Jack in the kind of traditional story. Um, how did the romantics feel about kind of romantic uh, traditional folk stories? Was that something they were kind of heavily interested in?
1: Yeah, there was a very big revival in the later 18th century, uh, partly political because they were interested in um, the culture of the people. Um, but yeah, uh, there was also concern about oral storytelling. Being somehow under threat and being forgotten now that everyone had discovered discovered print culture, so so they're very interested and they're also interested in um, the kind of imaginative world that's possible in a story. So you can have kind of supernatural things going on, or you can have um, you can have stories that and. and Details of stories that mean something that isn't just purely literal. So there's all sorts of reasons why they're very interested in in Folk tales Mm. Um. and similarly in green space. So we often think of the
0: romantic poets as kind of uh, Particularly Wordsworth and Coleridge the the figures of kind of the lake poets who are interested in the natural world Um, was this kind of a Does this
1: mean that we should be reading their poetry in particular with a kind of attention to the natural world? Um, well, I think they often foreground it. So, mm. so yes, I think if you're reading their their a lot of their poems, you're very conscious of it. Um, and um, I think one of the difficulties now is that um, probably over the last fifty years, um, just basic general knowledge about the natural world has rather receded. So, although people might kind of be able to relate to words of talking about a stream that he's hearing as a as a baby when he talks about something like the the tall ash outside the window of the cottage where he was fostered out as as a child after his parents had died. Um I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily be very clear about what an ash tree was as opposed to any other sort of tree so so sometimes I think the details um get a bit glossed over uh, just because it's outside a lot of people's experience so, so that's one of the things I'm interested in um so for example with the ash tree and the prelude um, just thinking well what what were the sort of traditional associations with an ash tree, and did that have more meaning um, for readers up until very recently than it, you know than it than it does now um, and again, that relates back
0: to to folk tales, doesn 't it because it 's not only what an ash tree looks like, but it 's the symbolism in stories going mm. back kind of an oak tree symbolizes you know something very old and tradition and, and yeah. whereas a young a young tree that 's growing up next to it that 's you know some symbolism that we might find harder to recognize now. Mm. Um, do you think it's worth teaching that I mean do you think that if we if people had a greater knowledge kind of about trees and things at a younger age and they would be able to decode these poems
1: yeah I think they would and just get more out of it Mm. it's just um, a whole kind of area that that, um, was very familiar to to readers until quite recently uh, which has now disappeared so it's not that different from for example, references to religion and Christianity, um, in, in texts again Old text that everybody mm. understood what they meant, and everybody recognized um the symbols just because that uh, that was part of the culture whereas now um you know when you 're teaching you you sometimes have to just explain what something what something means mm. um, and you probably found that as well um, you know doing victorian literature there 's loads and loads of references on uh, you know middle english there 's just mm. lots and lots of ref- references to the Bible, which unless you 're really familiar with the bible you don 't necessarily pick up whereas you know, 100 years ago, everybody just just did know what they meant. Um, mm,
0: absolutely. It becomes a case of just what you have in your knowledge base that makes some poems more intelligent than mm. others. Um, so I wonder if if that's the way that you're approaching it, sort of whilst teaching these texts, you find yourself having to explain these kind of other things rather than people coming in with the knowledge. Do you think literature then can help us to sort of repair our relationship with the natural world and, and find ourselves more close to it?
1: well yeah and i think especially um there's a kind of literary approach to the natural world that speaks to a certain kind of person in a way that you know going on a nature walk or watching david attenborough might not because i think you know if you'll read if you if you read a poem like um courage kind of Christabel um, and you're kind of quite fascinated by that I mean that, that's a good example of what we're talking about mm. because it is a poem that is evoking traditional storytelling but is very very peculiar and you recognise there's something very odd about it mm. um, but um, you know Christabel early on goes out into the wood and she sang her prayers under an oak tree and if you know a bit more about what an oak tree is physically but also all its associations, its association with masculinity for example um, and strength and endurance and all sorts of um, other other qualities, but it also had kind of uh, traditional Celtic religious associations. There's just a whole kind of load mm. of stuff around it that's, a, that's, that's, that's that's very interesting. And and of course for um, romantic poets and and indeed anyone really kind of. Post, um, you know, post, post Renaissance. Um, often there were all sorts of associations that come in from classical literature as well, and, and fusing mm. with traditional myths. And it's just a whole kind of enriching of your your reading of of the poem, as you know, as as anything that you, you know you're you're reading a text and you read it first just to see what you get out of it. Then you st- if you're studying it, you start to think, well, what do these words actually mean? Mm. Um, and if you actually try to define oak tree you know what do you get in the in the dictionary but if you actually have an editor who reveals some of the associations that can suddenly mean a great deal more and you Mm. suddenly see links in the poem that you might not have seen otherwise so so i think i think it is a a potentially um kind of interesting area for 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 further work really um and i think you know i think lots of students find it interesting when they discover Mm. that these trees have totally different different meanings um
0: Yeah and I suppose in a way it's kind of it's going the other way from what the romantics are doing but not in in a way that's any less valuable you know if they're kind of being inspired by the natural world to write a beautiful poem and then we're then finding the poem beautiful and therefore discovering what nightingale might sound like if we don't know or what an oak tree looks like or Mm. it's just a different way of encountering the same thing which is arguably getting getting something more out of the poetry. Um, In terms of our relationship with the natural world on a kind of more practical level obviously the way that we treat it now with climate change and and industrialization and fewer people living in the countryside with any kind of interaction with the natural world there's kind of a there seems to be a kind of common consensus among eco-critics that having a better relationship with the natural world or, or, or certainly having more knowledge of it will make us more respectful of it um do you think that we could be using literature to give people this closer connection or do you think that through the knowledge we discover it might encourage people to treat the world
1: better or do you think that's too... Uh, definitely yes uh, I, th- I think there's no no question about that and I've often found if I'm giving talks about trees um, you know pe- people will come because they're interested in trees mm-hmm. uh, but then if you read them a poem they're usually le- much less used to poetry um, and they're fascinated by it um, and, and they want to you know they want to read more um, and it makes them see poems and see the natural world in a completely different way. So I think for uh, literature students who are used to Used to poetry and responding to it, mm-hmm. um, it's going. That's going to be even more the case that they're going to see the world in a in a, in a completely different way. Um, it is it is just hugely hugely enriching. Mm. Um, and I think once people begin to be more open and more confident about their interaction with the natural world, because I think it's very often as sort of either not knowing how to respond or not noticing things. Um, once people do start noticing things, then they're going to mind a lot more when they. Find find them all being destroyed if you if you care about something you mind more when you see it Mm. just being wrecked completely um and you can then do something about it because you know i think very often with the environmental crisis tim morton talks about um hyper objects things that are too big really and too scary to do anything about um uh, actually, um, there are lots of things everybody can do uh, if you if you know what to do and, and think to do it so you know just a simple thing like encouraging your college to plant a few more trees makes a mm-hmm. huge difference It makes a huge difference to um, to the environment to the quality of the air um, to biodiversity to heat heat loss all of these things mm-hmm. um, and those are really very simple, simple things, but I think people wouldn't think that that was a good thing to do unless they kind of had already got interested and mm. were actually appreciating things and seeing, you know, seeing how, um, you know, something like a tree is, is just full of non-human life forms, which we're incredibly fortunate to be able to, to, to see. And it's, um, it's, just, it's just a way of looking. I, and, and the more people discover that, it, it's a kind of, you know, very self, self-rewarding mm. um, thing and, and very good, very beneficial.
0: Yeah, and I suppose with the, with the tree in college, that's actually a twofold benefit in a way because you're getting the benefit to the college environment, but also I heard the head gardener giving a talk about this the other day. Mm-hmm. They want to encourage students who arrive aged 18 having not had all that much interaction with the natural world at all to then foster that same kind of love for the natural world that those people planting the trees have, and in that way it's it's kind of being passed on. Mm. Um, I was just wondered if we'd like to give some recommendations to our readers. Are there any poems that you particularly recommend to people who want to from your kind of specialism, the people who want to have this relationship with the natural world or or enjoy poems that celebrate it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, John Clare is is really help, is really good in this regard. Um, he's he's one of the Romantic poets who um, he had very kind of close relationship with with the natural world because he, you know he he worked as a farm labourer at various times in his life. But um, people might be interested in the poems he writes about birds' nests. They're absolutely beautifully constructed sonnets, um, and he, you can see him observing um, observing these. Um, dif- different species of birds very carefully so so he he, I would definitely recommend uh, pretty much anything written by Claire actually um, Wordsworth again um, is uh, very uh, open to the natural world and, and conveys it very very beautifully uh, but all sorts of people, Ke- Keats is very interesting as, as, as well because um, his take is very different because he grew up in the middle of London uh, so he kind of he just dis- really partly discovers the natural world through reading um words within lee hunt um and also through his medical training because as a as a doctor he had to go on botanical expeditions and collect plants and make sure he knew the difference between you know a foxglove mm. and other sorts of flowers so he he describes he describes plants very very um accurately as well um shelley or oh, i mean all of them all of them just get huge um you know huge inspiration from from plants Mm. um but also it's not it's not just romantic period um if you think about Jeremy manley hopkins or Mm. thomas hardy they're all they're all kind of um filling their um their texts with with plants and flowers shakespeare actually um yeah absolutely
0: i suppose that's another connection we have to the romantic period is that there were just the very beginning of people who would grow up in cities and not and not have encountered the natural world and therefore be kind of encountering it later in life and mm-hmm. as uh, with someone for someone with a poetic sensibility then writing poetry about it. Um, thank you so much for your time. The last question I wanted to ask was how you responded personally to the experience of the storytelling in the garden. And if anything surprised you about it, or as someone who is receptive to both kind of aspects of the project did you find anything interesting
1: yeah I do I mean I love going to the Botanic Gun because it's such a it's such a kind of quiet space but quite often I go down there on my own because uh, yeah. it's just a nice place to, to kind of think about things uh, it's quite a creative space so it was interesting to me to go with a group of other people and obviously having uh, kind of co-organized it I had certain anxieties about how mm. it's going to go um and I had no idea which story Ben was going to tell or what it would be like so I was actually very struck by the misogyny as as you uh, as you pointed out i thought oh my goodness um well this uh, this is a interesting choice um so i i was struck by that but um and I, also at the beginning there were quite a lot of noises i mean there was someone drunk on the river and there were sirens going off so i was thinking well this is this is not a very traditional um Space actually in many ways, but then actually as the story continued, um, I did get quite involved with with the story, and then all of those kind of anxieties and worries about it seemed to seemed to disappear a bit, and I was actually just really enjoying listening to the birds and um, you know observing the tree that he was standing under, and thinking what a traditional form that is. There's a wonderful story um, uh, called "Under the Banyan Tree" uh, by a, a you know fairly twentieth twentieth century. Um, Indian writer, and he tells the story of a traditional storyteller who always told his stories under a banyan tree. So I was sort of thinking about that as well. So I had quite a few thoughts going on, as well as listening, listening to what he was saying. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's partly what was so good about it. It was having
0: all these other kind of sources of stimulation as well as the story itself
1: yeah exactly which you you don't get if you're in a theater or a kind of enclosed space where it's all it's all dark and the lighting's Mm. being concerned um and i think also that sense of things of not being under control that's one of the things i find most sort of um kind of refreshing about the natural world people sort of think they must be in control of their environment all the time and you're not in control at all you know anything can happen at any point and that's the thing um you know birds can come and fly off or you know the weather changes it started raining and that and that kind of lack of control i always find incredibly relaxing um and and interesting and it it puts everything in perspective it reminds you that actually there's only so much you, you know you can you can do so there's not much point in worrying because most of life isn't under your control anyway. Brilliant. What a a great note to end on. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for your time,
0: Professor Stafford. Thank you for listening to this episode of Oxpods. If you enjoyed it, please do recommend to a friend and check out our episodes from other channels too. To keep up to date with episode releases, to suggest ideas for new episodes, or to get involved with recording, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or go straight to our website at www.oxpods.co.uk.